0: I'm Talmadge Boston, and welcome to this edition of Cross-Examining History, where we explore American history and thought leadership through conversations with esteemed authors. Today, I'm interviewing James Conroy, an award-winning historian, about his new book, The Devils Will Get No Rest, FDR Churchill and the Plan That Won the War, about the 10-day Casablanca conference that took place in January 1943. The book came out on June 13, 2023, and we did the interview a week later in front of a live audience in Dallas on June 22. Enjoy. It's my honor to uh, welcome our guest, Jim Conroy. Uh, Jim is a man of my heart in that For almost 40 years, he was a practicing commercial litigator in Boston. And then he got smart and decided to be a historian and and ultimately now a full-time historian. Uh, His first two books were on Abraham Lincoln, won national awards, including the Lincoln Prize for the best Lincoln book of the year. His next book was on Jefferson. And this book just came out last week. He wanted to come to Dallas first on his book tour. Uh, Jim lives uh, in Boston. Uh, and so, Jim, welcome to Dallas. And, and I also forgot to mention my wonderful assistant here, Cheryl Kerala. The clicker on this PowerPoint doesn't work. This is the first time I've tried to do a slideshow during an interview, so uh, give me a little slack if I screw it up a little bit. But Cheryl is nice enough to advance the slides as we go along. So. Uh Cheryl, go ahead and advance the first slide. So as I mentioned, Jim, your first books were about Lincoln and then Jefferson, 19th century, but now you've moved up to Franklin Roosevelt Churchill, 20th century. What was it about this story of the Casablanca Conference of January that took place, 10-day conference, January 1943, to plan how we were gonna win World War II. What was it about that story that, that grabbed you and made you wanna spend three years of your life researching and writing about it?
1: Well, first of all, uh, Talbot, thank you so much for inviting me and thank you all for having me. It's a great pleasure to be here. I really appreciate it. Uh, well, uh, I had written three other books, as you've mentioned, and was casting a- about for another topic, which I think is the hardest thing to come up with a good idea. Uh, and uh, I was watching the History Channel one night and saw a documentary about the Casablanca Conference, which I had heard of and knew a little bit about, but not a great deal. Uh, no book had ever been written about it before now. Uh, and as I took that in, uh, we'll see as we go. But the the whole idea of Franklin Roosevelt, Winston Churchill, Charles de Gaulle, Dwight D. Eisenhower, Patton, uh, General Montgomery, uh, Lord Lewis, Mountbatten, and I could go on, and we probably will go on, uh, all in the same place for 10 days enclosed by a mile of barbed wire uh, in Casablanca, an active war zone that had been bombed two weeks earlier. I, I thought to myself, well, there's a story there somewhere. So uh, that's what got me attracted to it.
0: Okay. Now, your book's prelude opens with the story of British General Alan Brooke who was a hero of World War I who was starting to write his war diary in September 1939 who was on his way to take command of the British Expeditionary Force in France after Hitler's army had seized Poland. So why is that man at that point in time the starting point for the Casablanca conference that took place in January 1943 four years later
1: well there are two reasons really why I made General Brooks uh, experience at Dunkirk uh, the opening of the book first he's the central most important character I think in the conference as we'll probably discuss Uh, he was the uh, chief of the imperial general staff uh, the most senior officer in the British military and uh, everybody knows about Dunkirk that, you know, this British army was evacuated by fishing ships and yachts and trawlers and things. But people don't think about how that army got from the middle of northern France to Dunkirk, surrounded by German forces, outnumbered, uh, outtanked, outgunned, uh, and fought their way 40 miles from that spot to Dunkirk. And it was Brooke that really is more than any individual responsible for that Feet, uh, and so there was that. <laughs> and secondly, um, the one of the themes of the book is the conflicting British and American strategies going into this conference. Uh, the Americans were bent on crossing the Channel as quickly as they could, hitting the Germans in the teeth as fast as they could. Whereas the the British, who had been in France fighting Germans, uh, knew what they were up against and uh, favored. A strategy of coming up through the Mediterranean, which we'll talk about too. Uh, and so to start with Dunkirk and the horrific uh, situation that Brooke led them out of uh, is a good way to acquaint the audience with the thought that the British had been to France and were not eager to go back until they were in a position to do so. Mm-hmm. I just realized I forgot
0: a sponsor. Coopers. is Josh here? Thank you, Josh. Sorry for having overlooked that, but... Come back. (laughs) All right, so uh, it starts with uh, General Brooke. Uh, In May 1940, uh, the Germans take control of France, which basically means they have control over uh, mainland Europe. And so during the 19 months between the time that uh, the Germans had had overtaken mainland Europe, but hadn't gotten the British Isles, uh, before the US entered the war, uh, in December 1941, what did Churchill and Brooke do to prevent the Germans from taking over all
1: of Europe? Well, uh, by the middle of 1941, more or less, the, the British had been pushed out of Crete, Norway, Greece, and France, uh, had won one battle, the Battle of Britain itself, which was a defensive battle, uh, and had not won any offensive battles. Uh, The Germans were just an incredibly powerful uh, military force, uh, infantry, artillery, uh, aircraft, all of it, and um, outnumbered and outmanned and outgunned uh, the British everywhere. So most of us know that uh, the British fought Hitler alone for a year uh, until he made the uh, hard-to-explain mistake of invading Russia. Um, But up to the point of this conference, Uh, What General Brooke described as hanging on by our eyelids was the basic British situation, and uh, they had managed to hold on and to get to the point by January of 43 where we could begin to be thinking about an offensive strategy for the first time in the war.
0: Right, so the United States enters a war after Pearl Harbor. A few days later, Hitler declares war on the United States. So we're on two fronts uh, in the Pacific as well as in Europe. And the, the conference is in January of 43. So, what happened between the time we officially entered the war and, and the conference in terms of collaboration between the United States and, and Great Britain?
1: Well, uh, of course, we were fighting a two-front war in the Pacific and in Europe, really two full-scale wars on opposite sides of the world. Um, And in the Pacific theater, uh, the British had a very small naval presence. It was primarily, almost exclusively, an American war. Uh, And um, the Americans had stopped the Japanese advance in the Battle of Midway and the Battle of the Coral Sea, uh, aircraft carrier battles in the spring of 1942. So Japan had been sort of stopped in its aggression, but had not yet been rolled back. There was a long way to go. The war was far from one. On the European uh, front, uh, as I said, the British really had carried uh, the whole of that war. Not a single American bullet had been fired in Europe in January 1943, and not a single American bomb had been dropped on Germany. So we're well into this war now. And um, it really was a British show in Europe up until the time of this conference. So in
0: November 1942, a couple of months before this conference, we actually collaborate uh, in the battlefield uh, in Northern Africa. So how did that first effort at a collaboration uh, but in the allied effort between the Americans and the British, how that go in North Africa?
1: Well, it went very well. Uh, without Again, we have to be very concise here. There's a lot of ground to cover. But the essential situation was that uh, when the French capitulated to the Germans in June of 1940, under the terms of that armistice, uh, the Germans occupied the northern half of France and a wide swath along its entire Atlantic coast. What was left was run by a puppet government in Vichy, France, a resort town, in, in central France that was basically a, 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 you know, a, a mouthpiece, if you will, for the Germans. Um, and uh, under the terms of that armistice, the French kept their empire, including North Africa, almost all of North Africa. So uh, in October of 42, a couple of months before the conference, the British and the Americans combined in an assault on Northern France. Uh, hoping that the French military there would just sort of welcome them and join forces with them, but they did not. Under Vichy's uh, orders, the Vichy government's orders, the French resisted that landing and that invasion for about two days, Uh, 3,000 dead, roughly the same number on both sides. Most of us don't know that or have forgotten that, that we fought the French uh, for a few days in World War II. But um, eventually, the French military on the scene just ignored the orders from Vichy and, you know, joined the Allies. So, at this point of the conference, the Americans and the British were occupying uh, most of North Africa, with the exception of Tunisia, which the Germans still held. And um, Montgomery's uh, British army had driven uh, Rommel out of Egypt and were still driving him uh, west across North Africa. So the strategy there was to sort of catch them in between these two forces, and uh, that's the situation in North Africa.
0: Right, now I hope everyone saw Jim's editorial in last Sunday's Dallas Morning News about why this book is so timely in terms of the British leaders and the American leaders with very different perspectives on how to win the war, huge egos involved, conflicting opinions, and yet somehow over the 10-day conference, they found a way to agree on a plan. And it's an exercise in civil discourse that obviously in 2023, we need people to think about and be learning lessons from. So with that in context, talk about as the conference opened, what was the British strategy for how to win the war compared to what was the American strategy for how to win the war?
1: Well, these were the the two big issues. There were many other issues, less important, but all important, but less uh, monumental than the, the two leading issues. Uh, the first of those was uh, what, what proportion of our resources will we devote to the European theater and what proportion to the Pacific theater? Uh, the Americans, of course, were fully engaged. There we go, the map's up there now. Yeah, okay, great. As you can see, you're starting with the Pacific theater on the right. By the way, the word that applies to this set of maps that we had done for the book is terrifying, if there's one word to, to, uh, to, to summon for this. Um, the, on the Pacific side, as I said, the Japanese had been checked offensively, but still commanded all of that territory that you see there. In the black is Japan itself. Uh, Japan had uh, taken Korea and Taiwan decades earlier and were now incorporated into Japan. But all of those gray areas there are controlled by the Japanese. They had taken the Dutch East Indies from the Dutch, uh, Malaya, Singapore, Hong Kong, and Burma from the British, uh, French Indochina from the French, and all of those island chains down there. So they were really in total control of the Western Pacific at this point, south, Southwestern. Uh, on the uh, European side, oh, let me finish the strategy issue. The British came to Casablanca knowing that the Americans were bent on beating Japan as quickly uh, as they could for obvious reasons, Pearl Harbor having brought us into the war. And the the British, too, had lost territory and many lives to the Japanese and were uh, not going to forget it. But their thrust was we have to beat Germany first. Germany was by far the greater power versus Japan. Uh, Germany had the ultimate uh, possible ability to dominate the world, whereas Japan was really uh, an Asian power. So the first British uh, objective was Germany first, uh, and the Americans agreed with that and understood that, but were also bound and determined to fight an aggressive all-out war in Japan. The British wanted a holding action in Japan, just a, a defensive action there until the Germans were beaten. So that resources could go to that. Um, In Europe, the Americans were, as I said, uh, determined to cross the channel as quickly as possible. This was sort of the American military uh, strategy broadly uh, at the time, ever since the Civil War, which is to hit the enemy as hard uh, as possible where he's strongest and just get that war over with. You know, take the casualties, inflict the casualties and get it done. So their objective was to do that as quickly as possible in 1943. Uh, The British who had been to France and fought the Germans in France, as I said at the outset, uh, knew that that would have been a catastrophe at that time. Probably would have lost the war because we just weren't ready for it. Didn't have the men and the landing craft and everything else uh, that was needed for that. And the British strategy really conceived and uh, sold by Brooke was to Look at the Mediterranean. If you'll look at that map as we speak, um, you've got an Anglo-American army in northern France that's ready to go across the Mediterranean. You've got the- In northern Africa. I'm sorry, in northern Africa. You've got the Axis powers in total control of the Mediterranean, which cut off all Allied shipping through the Mediterranean. The Suez Canal was not usable. All the shipping had to go around uh, the, the Horn of Africa of bringing in oil from Persia and every other supply they needed from the east. So they needed to open up the shipping in the Mediterranean. And Brook's general strategy militarily was uh, take a look at that map and see how, as he put it, it's like fingers coming down from Europe into the Mediterranean, uh, southern France, Italy, Sicily, Sardinia, Greece, uh, and the Balkans. And the Germans would, have, would know that an assault was coming because the plan was to mass forces and landing craft in ports on the North African coast. The Germans would know there was an attack was coming, but they wouldn't know where. So they would have to spread their forces out throughout that area and disperse themselves and, and thereby be a small enough force in any one of those places so that the allied uh, forces could attack and win. That was the British strategy. Okay.
0: So, uh, they get to Casablanca, January 1943. How did they decide on Casablanca? Who decided we needed to have a conference? What led to this historic gathering?
1: Well, uh, it was really a kind of a turning point of the war because they had, for the first time, one offensive operations in North Africa. And the Russians, at the very time that the Anglo-Americans met were fighting the Battle of Stalingrad and uh, during the conference encircled the German army at Stalingrad. So the tide had turned. It it had shifted from a purely defensive war to an opportunity for offense. And it was FDR's idea to gather uh, with Churchill and the high command uh, somewhere and talk out a strategy for how we're going to make that happen. Uh, Here you can see Uh, a gathering at Roosevelt's uh, villa at the conference, um, one of the commandeered villas of which there were 14. Uh, And um, you can see here the Anfa Hotel, which was the site of the uh, military discussions. Churchill and FDR met every day, had lunch, dinner every day. um, You
0: can show them where the villa was.
1: Yeah. Uh, Well, you can see the hotel under the wing of that uh, American plane, And then around it, you can see in a semicircle several of the villas that were commandeered as well. And a mile of barbed wire was erected around that whole compound. Anti-aircraft guns, tanks, British Marines, elite American troops guarding that whole affair. And I gotta tell you this, uh, as I said, the Germans had bombed Casablanca just two weeks earlier, and they'd have been back in force if they'd known what was happening there. A German, I should say a Spanish spy, working with the Germans, uh, found out that Roosevelt and Churchill were meeting at Casablanca, and sent a wire to Berlin saying that. And some poor German officer in Berlin uh, translated Casablanca as White House. (laughs) Uh, uh, History history does not record what became (laughs) of him. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, as a result of that, uh, uh, they were not bombed. Had they been, uh, it, it was an incredibly daring thing to do. There was all kinds of rumors about what's going on there. Obviously, something was going on. Uh, there was rumors that the pope was there with Haile Selassie, the emperor of Ethiopia, all this crazy stuff. Nobody thought that anyone would be so foolish as to put the high command in one place in, in a war zone within range of the Luftwaffe. So they just never were attacked. Um, But to sum this up, it was a kind of a combination of of a a conference and a cruise. Uh, It was a very luxurious setting, particularly for the British, who in wartime London, you know, everything was rationed. uh, There was little food, there was little fuel, there was, uh, you know, English weather in in January. And uh, when they came uh, to Casablanca, it was a great uh, sort of luxury for them. Um, But at the same time, there were these very intense negotiations going on.
0: So let's talk about, uh, first of all, tell them what that slide is. And then tell them what the level of preparation for the conference was
1: on each side of the table. Well, first of all, the slide is the conference room at the Anfa Hotel, which was a converted banquet uh, room. Uh, The Americans are on the left side, the British on the right. And uh, I got to tell you one little thing that, uh, that amuses me, too. Uh, hopefully you will be amused. Um, one of the primary sources is the minutes of these meetings, which are 500 pages of minutes. They're not a transcript. They're, they're a summary, like minutes are. And the two uh, officers, about four men down there, um, British and American brigadier generals, were note takers. That's the, that's the importance of this conference. Brigadier generals were taking the notes and they would compose the minutes overnight and then have to start again the next day. One of those minute takers, the British, uh, wrote a little uh, jingle that goes like this. Uh, and so when the great ones repair to their dinner, the secretary stays getting thinner and thinner, <laughs> racking his brain to record and report what he thinks they will think, they ought to have thought. <laughs> so talk about the preparation.
0: Uh, take it one at a time. What did the British do to prepare for this important conference, and then what did the Americans
1: do? Yeah, the British had 300 years of sophisticated military planning behind them, and uh, the preparation was impeccable. They had, uh, they had brought with them to Casablanca 72 officers, uh, all of them experts in their various fields, and a headquarters ship uh, that was equipped with all the latest electronics and, you know, jammed with papers and reports and experts. Uh, the Americans brought nine officers, uh, including the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and uh, also brought three uh, 3 ring binders, uh, one of which was titled, People You May Meet and Places You May See. Uh, the level of preparation was so lopsided, it's really hard to imagine Uh, The Americans had one meeting to prepare for this conference. The British prepared it for two months. So they just overwhelmed the Americans with preparation and experience and sophistication uh, at this conference.
0: So it's time for the first meeting. They're sitting down at the table across from each other. We all know how important first impressions are. How did the first meeting start, and what were the first impressions?
1: Well, the Americans had... um, had uh, met uh, the day before the conference began. And believe it or not, George C. Marshall was our uh, leader at the conference, who was famous for the Marshall Plan after the war, but he was the uh, chief of staff of the US Army. You saw his picture earlier. Um, And he uh, sat down with his delegation and said, okay, well, how are we gonna approach this conference? Imagine doing that, sitting down the day before this conference begins and sort of asking, what were we gonna do, guys? Um, And the consensus was, well, we need to take the initiative and we need to take command of the room and set the pace and set the agenda and just be in charge. So they walk into the conference room. Marshall's chairing the conference because the Americans occupied the place and uh, introduced himself. He didn't introduce himself, but welcomed everybody and made the usual preliminaries. And Brooke just took the ball and ran with it right there. Uh, Brooks, the guy with the
0: glasses? Yeah, Brooks, the guy with
1: the owl-shaped glasses, basically, uh, sitting on the right side of the table there. Very commanding figure. Uh, One of the things he was known for was meeting with generals and admirals and saying, I flatly disagree, while he snapped a pencil in half. So uh, this is the commanding figure who just took the ball and ran with it, as I say. Gave a half-hour presentation on the British strategy, followed by a half hour presentation by the first sea lord on the naval strategy, followed by a half hour presentation by the commander of the RAF. So for the first hour and a half or two, a totally British show. And from that point forth, the Americans were basically following the British lead, trying to catch up with this far more experienced and sophisticated panel.
0: Now in terms of how it worked, obviously neither FDR nor Churchill is sitting at the table. So so how did this work as between the political leaders on the one hand and the military leaders on the other?
1: Uh, FDR and Churchill uh, met in Churchill's villa, which was quite luxurious, uh, white uh, Moroccan villa, uh, immediately became known as the White House. Uh, And uh, FDR and Churchill met there every day, had lunch and dinner almost every day, and would talk through military issues, diplomatic issues, political issues, and generally amuse each other and entertain each other. They were friends, you know, as well as rivals, really, uh, while these meetings were going on. And then uh, three times during the 10-day conference, they all met together and would review where things were, where they were going, and talk it out uh, among themselves. No deference given to rank. It was who's got the better idea, not who's got the more stars on his shoulders. And uh, a very interesting discussion that uh, kind of helped smooth things out as they went forward. So with all these
0: big egos in the room and so much at stake, uh, obviously uh, people with big egos typically like to hear themselves talk. Uh, what, what did the people do to kind of keep the discussions on track, moving forward, prevent egos from taking control of conversations? Uh, how did that work uh, in terms of the flow of discussions?
1: Yeah, well, I think the ego is the key word here. Keep in mind that these are all men at the very top of their military professions who are not used to being told they're wrong uh, and not used to being confronted or challenged, uh, let alone uh, sometimes in heated terms, which happened. Um, But uh, Churchill had met with his delegation before the meeting began and counseled them that you got to give the Americans their say. You have got to give them space and time to make their case, to be heard, uh, to you know participate in this discussion. And then, like a drip, drip, drip of water on a stone, uh, they will come to see the wisdom of our position. So there wasn't a lot of you know holding people to to a time limit or directing uh, the discussion. It really went on for for 10 days. They would meet for seven or eight hours a day for 10 days. Uh, And then, by the way, continue that afterward informally, you know, at dinner and such. So uh, it was really a free-form discussion. Uh, There were some very choice moments of of anger that erupt. But when that would happen, a break would be called. And uh, they'd go, you know, take a break for 15 minutes and come back with their composure.
0: Now, comparing to today and everything you read about why Congress doesn't work, why the federal government doesn't work, is because uh, people are only in D.C. Tuesday through Thursday, otherwise they go back home and they fundraise. And so there are not the personal relationships, seeing each other's at restaurants, going to their kids' games, et cetera, et cetera. The Casablanca Conference, 10 days, they're behind a barbed wire fence, as you say. There are bars, there are restaurants. Talk about how important the interpersonal relationship developments were both during the meetings, but especially after the meetings toward being able to get to where they could really talk together on the same page.
1: Well, let me answer that in two halves, if I may. Uh, In the 1970s and into the 80s, I worked on Senate staff, uh, largely for Senator Muskie of Maine. And um, in those days, people didn't go home, you know, on Thursday and come back on Tuesday. People stayed through the weekend and would go to each other's homes, you know, we dine done together, uh, drink together. I had many Republican friends. There was no, there was, you know, there was uh, conflict in the sense of disagreement, uh, but there was no anger. There was no bitterness. We respected each other. And that came, I think, a lot from just constant contact and friendships forming. That's what happened at Casablanca. They came to Casablanca having met three times or four times, I guess, before in London and in Washington. But what would happen was the home team would go back to their offices after the meeting and the visitors would go to their hotels and it was all business. They didn't really get to know each other. At Casablanca, there was nowhere to go. So they had dinner together, they had lunch together, they went to Le Bar American together at the hotel, uh, got to know each other, friendships formed, uh, suspicions diminished. And uh, that was a very important part of, uh, of finding a way to compromise
0: these issues.
1: Cheryl, advance two
0: slides and go one more. All right, this is uh, one of the real heroes of the book. Uh, I do commercial litigation and I have for 45 years and uh, one of the greatest developments that's happened over the years is uh, effective mediation to bring disputes uh, into a resolution mode quicker than going through a full-blown trial. So this is John Coatesworth Schlescher, who was Chief of Staff to Charles Portal, who was head of the British Air Fleet. He was at the table at the meetings. What pivotal role did he play in the success of the Casablanca Conference.
1: Uh, he was, in fact, pivotal. And uh, he wrote a memoir, which is very interesting. Uh, he um, he was a senior staff officer. He did not participate in the discussions, but he would sit at the table, actually at the kids' table, you know, behind the conference table, and uh, listen and take notes and watch people's faces and reactions and all that. He had been... Uh, stationed in Washington for a year, uh, working with the Americans, and described himself as the RAF's American translator, um, and knew the Americans, knew how they thought, knew what was important to them. Again, I come back to what I said before, friendships, knowing each other. uh, And he came up with the essence of where they overlapped, you know, where where the objectives and thoughts overlapped, and then where they differed, and figured out a way to bridge those differences. Some of it by leaving some things vague, you know, to be dealt with later as events played out, but found the commonality. And the essence of that commonality was uh, well, we both want to defeat Germany first, we both want to defeat Japan. Uh, the Americans understand the priority is Germany, they want to cross the channel. We've convinced them they can't do it this year, but we'll commit to doing it next year in 1944. In the meantime, we'll build up an enormous invasion force in England that can do it and make that happen. And they will accede to our thought about taking Sicily first, uh, thereby opening up the Mediterranean, drawing Germans away from France and from Russia, which was essential, and worked that all up into a document that both sides accepted. Nobody got exactly what they wanted, but everybody got what they needed and came to respect each other and find that common ground. I think we can do that today if we work on it.
0: But uh, the key was his capacity to listen, to read the body language, to get past the egos to what the real points were. And obviously, uh, that's what successful uh, dispute resolvers
1: do. They don't get... Before we go on, if I may, uh, Talmets, so let me just say one thing personally about Slesser. He's a fascinating guy. First of all, he looks like David Niven, I think, the British actor. Uh, secondly, you can see him leaning on a cane, and he's obviously taken that choice deliberately. He was a childhood polio victim, lame in both legs, and walked with two canes and had been an RAF pilot in World War I, polio and all. So this was not a, uh, a chess player, this was an actual combat veteran uh, who had liked and admired the Americans and knew how to deal with both sides. That was the important thing. I
0: mm-hmm. Now, one of the most important discussion points during the conference was what to do about France and who was gonna lead France. Uh, What was the strategy for bringing France back into the fold, and who would lead it? And so talk about that issue and who the key players were. Talk about who's in that photograph and and how that
1: uh, was resolved. Sure, Uh, well, on Churchill's right is Le Grand Charles, Charles de Gaulle, uh, who made the rest of the egos look like modest people. Um, the book will tell you how extraordinary this man's ego was. Uh, Churchill at one point was having dinner with some Americans, and they asked him about de Gaulle, and he said, well, let's not talk about de Gaulle. We call him Joan of Arc, and and we're looking for some bishops to burn him. <laughs> uh, the, the trick here was uh, de Gaulle was the sort of voice of the, of the French resistance and a hero in France with a BBC microphone and a very small military force that he had charge of who had been evacuated from Dunkirk. The officer on the left, uh, Henri Giraud, was another French officer who was really part of the Vichy government. And um, they'd liked each other, they'd worked with each other, but de Gaulle refused to share power with Giraud. Uh, FDR and Churchill were trying to get them both to unite in one entity. And de Gaulle just refused to do it. Um, But at Casablanca, after many days of trying to get them together, FDR came up with a clever ruse, if you will, to to get something out of this. Um, That picture that you see there was taken at the closing press conference of the conference. Um, War correspondents were brought in from Algeria and. Uh, didn't know why they were going or who they were going to see, but when they got there, they they, they were shocked by what they saw. And what FDR... Can you go back for a moment, please, to the last one? Uh, What FDR did is he planted a thought through a staff person in the mind of a photographer, an AP photographer, who was one of the war correspondents who he knew well, and uh, didn't tell anybody what idea he had planted. And while they were sort of posing for this group picture, that photographer shouts out, Mr. President, can we have a picture of the general shaking hands? And uh, FDR puts his left hand under de Gaulle's arm and his right hand under Giro's arm and sort of lifts them up. They had no choice but a scene. And so they stood up, next please, and uh, shook hands as far from each other as the laws of physics allowed. Um, But that photograph became the lead Photograph in every newspaper in the Western world, and FDR had accomplished his PR stunt, if you will. So
0: the Schleser memo becomes the ultimate plan, uh, ratified by the consensus, and uh, go to the next one. No, you want one back. And so the conference is coming to an end, and you see all the press there in that photograph, and so what did franklin roosevelt say that became uh, particularly noteworthy during that conference
1: well yeah of course the content of the conference was co- top secret you know nothing was said about what they had discussed or decided but what fdr did at that uh news conference you can see all those uniformed war correspondents there also you can see louise anderson in the top middle area of that who was a army captain and uh transcribed everything that was being said um but FDR announced at that press conference that the allies would accept nothing less than unconditional surrender from the Germans and the Japanese and the Italians and uh, that was the headline news unconditional surrender it was the first time that had ever been thought about you know in a major war all wars end by negotiation but not this one they weren't about to leave the nazis in charge in germany or the fascists in italy or the warlords in japan So that became the news uh, of the day.
0: Jim Conroy's terrific new book on the January 1943 Casablanca Conference, where Churchill, the British military leaders, Franklin Roosevelt, and the American military leaders planned their strategy for winning World War II, is a timely study on how great things can be accomplished through the art of disciplined, respectful civil discourse, something the leaders of our government today seem to have forgotten, and it's to our detriment. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Make sure and catch all my podcasts at Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, and the Washington Independent Review of Books website. Until next time, remember, as my late great friend Bobby Bregan used to say, you can't hit the ball with a bat on your shoulder. This is Talmadge Boston of the law firm Shackelford, Bowen, McKinley, and Norton. Thanks for listening.